I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 51 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with Robert M. Lee. Robert is the CEO and founder of the industrial ICS IIoT cybersecurity company, Dragos Inc. He is also a non-resident national cybersecurity fellow at New America, focusing on policy issues relating to the cybersecurity of critical infrastructure. For his research and focus areas, Roberts was named one of Passcode's influencers, awarded EnergySex Cybersecurity Professional of the Year in 2015, and inducted into the Forbes 30 Under 30 for Enterprise Technology in 2016. As a passionate educator, Robert is also the course author of SANS ICS 515 with its accompanying GIAC GRID certification. Robert got his start in cybersecurity at the U.S. Air Force, where he served as a cyber warfare operations officer. He performed defense, intelligence, and attack missions in various government organizations. In this episode, we discuss threat hunting, SCADA, ICS, IIoT, and IoT security, and there's a difference, his start in cybersecurity, the 2015 Ukrainian power grid attack, starting and teaching a SANS ICS class, advice he would give to someone starting in the ICS industry, his involvement and my involvement in Hack NYC, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Robert, thanks for joining me on Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? I'm doing very well on yourself. I'm doing great. Thank you. So um, you're, you're kind of coming back now post-2008 RSA. Was there anything particularly interesting this year, um, or, or what was the latest buzzwords, I suppose, that, that they were trying to shove down everybody's throat? Yeah, I um, I was pleasantly surprised with RSA, so I've actually avoided it like the plague uh, for my entire career. I've always heard that it's just industry buzz terms, and don't get me wrong, there's plenty of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I finally went, so I run my company, so I kind of uh, felt that I needed to go do the dance. And I went there, and I was surprised with how many people in the community were actually present and, and got to fill my calendar with some good talks. I'm not not necessarily talks at RSA. I have to admit, I didn't go to one of them. Just did mine and and did the meetings. But um, uh, yeah, there definitely a lot of buzzwords. I think we still are stuck in this phase of security, and I don't know how long it's going to last. I mean, it seems like it's been forever. But but the constant jump to the next one, hype cycle, silver bullet kind of um, desire. I mean, there was an ungodly amount of AI and blockchain discussions um, still at RSA, and Quite a bit more on the orchestration piece this year, but I have to admit I'm actually kind of an orchestration fan. Yeah. And the idea of limiting down some of the human uh, resources required for simple Monday task, I can absolutely get behind that. Um, but yeah, so overall, thought it was good. Uh, was was pretty surprised with it myself, um, and I definitely have to say for folks that it's a what it, what you make of it type conference. Yeah, and I think that goes with a lot of them. I mean, look, that you kind of go to each one of them, and they all have their different kind of agendas, and you just have to, I think, align your expectations. You're not going to get a, a schmoocon kind of experience that you're going to get at RSA. You have to kind of know what you're getting into when you go there. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you're if you're going for it to be a technical conference, you're doing the wrong thing. Um, but I I hung out all day in the industrial control systems for the ICS village with with uh, the folks there. Um, and still had meetings with executives, at different companies. And so it's, it's kind of like this weird mix of, I would say it's the largest breadth of attendees of any conference I've been to in terms of from the board level down to practitioners. Um, but it's still definitely more industry weighted than community. Yeah, I would say so. But it, it, again, there's that advantage. You get to kind of, you know where people are, so you can kind of hunt them down as opposed to chasing them all year on, on email or, or trying to get phone calls. At least you know they're going to be in one city in one place. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, no, I thought it was ridiculous how many people. So I live in Maryland and oh, yeah. the number of people from Maryland that wanted to have meetings with me. And I'm like, dude, I'm on your coast. Like, just meet me any other day of the year. Yeah, that that's why I felt like when I went out there a couple years ago. I, I think I met with more people on the East Coast in New York when I was living there before I moved to uh, Denver. But it was I, I I met with more people that I could see on a daily basis. I didn't I couldn't it was kind of bizarre. 
<laughs> so a lot of what you've been kind of focused on, you know, from at least what I've been observing is a lot of the, you know, what we're calling like ICS and Internet of Things a kind of arena. How did you kind of end up there as opposed to the myriad of other areas of cybersecurity you can kind of plop your, yourself down into? Yeah, I was so I was dealing with control systems before I became a security person. Um, so my my way into the community, I, I went to the uh, the Air Force Academy, and so started off my life as an Air Force officer. And um, while on summers, I would be able to be afforded the opportunity to go do humanitarian work. I went and spent some time in like Cameroon as an example, building uh, wind uh, turbines and water filtration units. Very very light stuff. I mean, there's a whole whole group there doing a lot more than than I ever dreamed of doing there. Um, but uh, so yeah, it was really interesting control system. But they were cool. I grew up a gamer and grew up in, in into video games and, and computers and building my own computers. But the idea of security of that was foreign to me. I think the the closest I ever got to security before uh, the military was. Uh, infecting other people with floppy disk, you know, malware, because that was hilarious, and uh, <laughs> uh, doing stupid kid things. But um, yeah, joined joined the military. Uh, I had a kind of a fun opportunity to, to right when cyber was kicking off uh, to go to the schoolhouse there, and I was surprised at how many people didn't even know what control systems were. And I'd ask around, and people were like, I don't know, what are you talking about? There was a couple instructors there, um, and they were building out some focus on it, but for the large part. Um, not a real large discussion on industrial control system security uh, in the community at that time. And I just remember sort of putting it back in my mind and, and not even being too concerned with it um, and graduating. And they told me, look, man, you did well. You can go do this like very prestigious assignment. This awesome assignment over here is great opportunity for you. Uh, potentially you work in the White House and go you know, work for the president um, or you can have this like podunk assignment in Germany. I'm like, yeah, I'll take Germany. And they're like, what? <laughs> like, dude, it's, it's Germany. I'm going to go get drunk and have lots of fun. And uh, I show up and it was um, a national security agency site. And they're like, hey, welcome. Welcome to the party. And I'm like, what What do you want me to do? And they're like, uh, find the unknown unknowns. I'm like, what What does that mean? And they're like, I have no idea. I'm like, okay. Uh, so I took my newfound security skills and my passion for control systems and figured that you know, if my job was to find the national level threats, then, you know, if I was going to go what, what we called discovery at the time, and now the community largely calls hunting, like, if I'm going to go hunting for these threats, then I imagine the cool players are eventually going to hit control systems. And so I, I built the agency's first mission looking at the nation states breaking into those sites and um, the rest is history. So, you know, when you kind of look at I guess there was a large portal. Actually, I think I, before even I, you came on my radar with doing the industrial control stuff, it was a, it was a good amount about the threat hunting. And that's, it's, it's weird. It's one of those buzzwords that I thought would have been more of a buzzword, but it, it hasn't. Um, but I, I kind of use it because I think it's a great, um, it's a great approach to saying, hey, look, let's not wait for, to spin up a full IR perspective. But what's your kind of take on what threat hunting is versus incident response and how do you approach it? Yeah, and you're right too. I was I was really concerned it was going to turn into a buzzword because it's been around longer than it was a buzzword. But it was one of those things that was effective, and so vendors jumped on it, <laughs> and it became a buzzword really quickly. Um, so so let's define this out a little bit. So when when you think of threat hunting, to me some of the core processes, some of the core features to be threat hunting is number one, it, it's human driven. Um, and, and number and sort of in that number one category, we'll just break it out. Number two, it's got to be a hypothesis driven function. So I've got to come up with a hypothesis and then I'm going to go test it. And that's that's the hunting portion. Um, but three, a really important part to me is it's this this process that's not bound by tools. So there is no such thing as a threat hunting tool uh, per se or something that can automate threat hunting. Because the threat hunting itself is the human component of it. You can use Wireshark. I mean, it just may not be effective. Sure, there are better tools for threat hunting. But um, so I think that's the important piece, though, is this is a human thing. And so that's where a lot of us kind of push back against the buzzwords a bit because people are trying to make it out to be a thing that you can automate. Like I'm going to have an endpoint agent that does threat hunting for you, which is completely absurd. Um, and realistically, hunting is one step 
sort of forward past your automation footprint. So if you're already being able to automate something, then you can't hunt there. But by its very interesting nature, what's hunting to you, you might not be hunting to some other organization because they've already might have increased their, their automation footprint to cover that. Um, but yeah, so hunting hunting was always this idea of creating hypotheses. Again, we used to call it discovery. Um, how do we go discover the new threats? And the fun thing about hunting to me is it is very similar to incident response without the incident. And, and the other thing that's kind of fun is, is a lot of folks associate success in threat hunting with finding threats. That's actually a really bad metric um, because you're either going to find an incident and everyone's going to get upset or you're measuring yourself and your success completely on the adversary's ability to be there. So you're, you're bounding your success to adversary actions, which is not a good or ideal situation. Um, instead, I would say that the the point of threat hunting is to understand your environment, to test out a hypothesis and identify your gaps. Um, would you have been, even been successful in the incident? Oh, well, you thought you had 30 days of logs, but you only had five. Uh, you thought that you had endpoint protection agents on this portion of the network, but it turns out they never got deployed. So you never even had that data source. So it's kind of pivoting through a, a collection framework of of what's in your environment, testing a hypothesis against it. And then when you're done, adding some automation to make sure that you can continually check now for what you previously hunted for instead of having to hunt over and over and over again. Yeah, it's interesting when we run our scenarios too, you, you, you almost get that, <clears throat> I would say almost resistance from, particularly as you go in as a consultant, people say, no, absolutely not. You know, that's whatever you're finding doesn't exist. I'm like, well, the, the evidence doesn't lie. Exactly. We said it's either some endpoint protection was, hasn't updated in, in seven months. Uh, logs were never aggregating like they thought. There's always something there and they just act completely dumbfounded and surprised, but they say, okay, this is good. This is a good kind of learning experience. You get further insight into your network that you probably wouldn't have had unless you went in with that mindset. So I think it's that framing it in that mindset of saying, okay, well, let's go see what's actually there. So if there was a full blown incident, what would we look for? Oh, absolutely. And I think this is the reason threat hunting really resonates with a lot of folks and, and doesn't with others is I find that the folks who have ever done instant response before love threat hunting um, because all of us have been on an, an instant response where you go in to do your job and you find that you're spending more time identifying assets and figuring out what your collection sources even are. I mean, it, it, it you know, significant portion of the incident response is not even dealing with the incident. It's just bringing them back up to the speed of where they should have been in the first place. Um, so I think, it, I think it does resonate very well with folks to um, do threat hunting um, if you've ever experienced it before, but it does create some convincing if you've never had to go through an incident before. Do you think there's uh, some prerequisites that people need with inside their environment before they start going on, you know, I'd say adding threat hunting to their security program? Yeah, absolutely. So the, it's a maturity thing for sure. Um, I would put, so I, I, years ago I wrote a paper called the sliding scale of cybersecurity and I basically put out that there's five categories. On the left-hand side, there's architecture, you know, sort of getting it right in the first place, building in security into your infrastructure, logging, visibility, things like that. Um, so the next category to the right would be passive defense, which is your technologies and tools that can actually give you some level of visibility or defense against the adversaries. Um, the third category to the, to the right then is active defense. That's not the hackback st stupid stuff, um, the, sort of the bastardization of that term, um, but it, it is the you know, the human focus. How do I put people that are responding and hunting and, 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 and being proactive in our environments? Um, the next piece being Intel, and then the next piece after that being offense, which actually a large portion of the paper's point was that offense is stupid. You should never actually get to that um, being a good investment. But, but going back to the, the hunting piece, hunting to me is a mixture, sort of saddles that line on that sliding scale between active defense and Intel. So I'm in, in many cases using an intelligence-driven hypothesis, not always, and David Bianco and I wrote a paper titled uh, "Successful or Hypotheses for Successful Threat Hunting and noted that there's actually three different types of hypotheses, but one-third of your hypotheses at a minimum is going to be intelligence-driven, so it kind of sides out that line. Anyways, long story short, um, the idea to me is that hunting is the upper end of an active defense. So if I've 
if I've not got a security operations center, if I've not got an instant response to you, if I've not done some of these things that are more foundational, then having a threat hunting team is not necessarily appropriate yet. Um, but I might still use threat hunting on like an annual engagement instead of a pen test. Um, maybe, and the, you know, all of them have their value, and so I don't want to try to position one against the other. But if you already know you're vulnerable, or you can guess, yeah, I probably got some vulnerabilities, and I'm not sure that patching some better vulnerabilities is really what we need this year, then you might find that a threat hunt is more appropriate to really sort of test out your your collection manager framework and and where you do an instance and how you would do. Um, and, and so I do think it can be useful in an engagement almost at any point in your life cycle, but you really should have at least the foundations. And that goes back to that architecture category of you better at least have an understanding of your assets and your, your information that's available to you and have an understanding of what past events you have and, and sort of what kind of logs and things they're generating. Um, and so if you, you, you feel that you have a defensible environment, even if you feel it's probably not defended today because you haven't added a lot of that human focus, then it's probably okay to bring in some folks. Um, but even though I, even, even as I say that, um, I know of plenty of folks who didn't have anything and they use a threat hunt to sort of kick off the discussion. So look, I, I'm, I'm going to almost immediately flip off and say, in, in my opinion, if you're going to make it an annual thing or you're going to have any sort of reoccurring basis, then you you need to follow all the guidance I just laid out, um, especially if you're going to have a team. But if you're by the very beginning of your life cycle, too, if you're trying to get budget, if you're trying to understand what you need, if you're trying to figure out what prioritizations you need for security, like what type of tooling and, and infrastructure do you need, then it's probably also okay to bring in threat hunters to say, you know, here's my threat model or help me build a threat model. What are the you know five scenarios I'm most concerned with? Okay, go hunt and see if I would even be able to respond to those types of scenarios. And then I know I won't. So help me figure out what will be required in my environment to be successful in those. And, and you touched on a little bit too. Uh, one of the things that's been you know kind of a, you know, scarily a little bit of another buzzword, but is around the uh, you know threat intelligence and trying to feed that in. And, and where do you see the maturity of that as a you know, kind of product and service in the marketplace and where people can actually start bringing that in into their environment and, and put in with that, that greater orchestration. Yeah. So to me, threat intelligence is not even close to buzzword, but you're right. It gets buzzed out for folks. And the reason I'll throw that out there is the idea of intelligence has been around a lot longer than cyber. And so all the baggage that comes around with cybersecurity, I would, I would say, you know, sort of a get off my lawn kind of approach when it comes to Intel. Um, what what happened and what made it buzzed out for people is two things. One, people started advertising things that Intel should never provide, like predictive intelligence to make you secure before the breach kind of crap. And and the other thing is the government as well as the private sector um, industry has largely talked about Intel in the form of a feed. Like I'm going to have indicators or I'm going to do information sharing and we'll just throw it in sticks and taxi and life will be awesome. And Intel is not a feed. Um, indicators of compromise are not intelligence. Um, they are they might be the byproduct out, byproduct after intelligence, and in most cases they're awful. Uh, you know, indicators can be great for scoping and forensics, especially when you create them off of your threat. But sharing them across companies is almost pointless. I mean, I think we have um, the metrics now to show that that well over seventy percent of indicators are specific, not just to adversaries and malware families, but to specific victims. So the idea of sharing between themselves is not not going to be ideal, not, not at a sort of a larger scale, maybe a couple key indicators, but, but not much. But Intel, real threat Intel, is an understanding that, first of all, the threat is human. So you have somebody who has the intent, opportunity, and capability to do you harm. Those three components are critical. And the capability might be malware, it might not be. Um, but a larger, larger portion of the security industry is hyper-focused malware. I mean, a lot of your Intel reports, things that get you know jaded as Intel reports today are largely just malware analysis dossiers. Um, and so the security community has guided how we view Intel in a way that I think is a little bit inappropriate. But if you, if you understand you have those three things, intent, opportunity, and capability, um, then what you're doing is analysis. And that really is what intelligence is all about. I'm doing an analysis around what types of threats and what would their you know, tradecraft and methods be to break into my environment? Or you know, what's my threat model? Help me guide my security based off that. Or here's the you know, six activity groups that we track 
um, that are interested in our industry. And again, instead of the indicators, here's the tradecraft and methods to which they're successful. Uh, and that level of, of analysis is actually extremely useful and guides hunting and response security operations, et cetera. So let's go back to the 2015 attack on Ukraine's power grid. So I got to um, investigate that and it was pretty uh, interesting to me where a lot of it was pretty easily explainable to anybody in terms of you know, quote unquote information sharing, where the adversary sent a spear phishing email. It had a uh, Word document and an Excel document, um, had macros enabled. When you clicked on the macros, a file dropped to the system, hard-coded IP address beaconed out. After that, adversaries came in, went over to uh, the domain controller and Active Directory, finding credentials, um, getting access, and then found a VPN into the industrial control system side of the house. Once in the industrial control system side of the house, they spent months figuring out the environment until they loaded a new file on uh, one of the human machine interfaces that also allowed, or then they took advantage of uh, remote desktop administration um, in that environment and be able to came back in and open up the circuit breakers. So I just walked you through the entire sort of you know, kill chain, if you will, of that attack. At no point was an IP address or MD5 or technical indicator useful to you in sharing from that information. But I just gave you the entire you know, tradecraft of what happened in that environment that anybody could take just the verbal understanding of how it happened and go hunt and respond and search and do security in their environment. Um, that's, that's what we want to get to. It's, it's really threat intelligence is counterintelligence. It's, it's analyzing stuff that's already happened to extract out lessons learned to, to minimize its effectiveness again. So, you know, it's funny because we do, I guess that's the balancing act I even try to find internally with some of my incident responders is say, hey, look, you know, we want to share some of this intel. And they're somewhat always hesitant because they say, look, you know, don't get too many of the indicators away because we don't fully understand it yet. And we're trying to watch it. We don't want to uh, kind of tip our hands that we're onto it, you know, whether it's a behavioral or, uh, you know, an atomic uh, indicator. Because it's so specific that they're worried that some of the, the attackers might then change their game and they're like, crap, we almost we would have had a little bit more figured out. So I guess, where do you draw that line of sharing and oversharing? Yeah, and so the, what you just went through was the intelligence gain loss consideration, right? So IGL, intelligence gain loss. The idea of what am I gaining versus what am I losing by, by giving up intel. And, and again, I would say even in those cases, those indicators aren't really intel, um, but you might have analysis on top of them that, you know, this one is really core because they never change it, like a backdoor that they consistently use. And so these are the, the, the magic values that people love to obsess about, but they're still indicators. They're lower, lower level. Um, and, and really, I still understand, though, the idea of, like, let's not give them up to potentially have the adversary change their methods or change their, their capabilities, I should say. And a lot of that usually relates to you know some of the lower level malware um, or or maybe even infrastructure. Um, the balance it, it really depends on the situation. If you're an internal company, you might be balancing it off of an understanding of could you still track the adversary if they moved. So usually people will give up a portion of their sensitive data um, and and share it out in the community, but not all of it. Um, like I guarantee if you go share a URL uh, you know, or a URI of, of adversaries infrastructure and you put it on a sharing group anywhere in the world, I don't care if it's classified or not, anywhere in the world you put that out there and you say, hey, this is TLP Red or Top Secret and don't do anything with it, but you can look in your own environments. Less than 24 hours later, somebody's like clicking the damn thing to like go and like check the infrastructure <laughs> yeah. and then the adversaries are alerted to it. Like this is – it happens every single time so so we know that and some people don't want to share but again i would i would try to break the community out of that to say look that's that's useful um there's no doubt that it's useful as long as it's useful to you that's great but let's think a little bit better let's move a little higher because an adversary's ability to change that indicator is really easy the adversary's ability to change their tradecraft is incredibly difficult um and and so we're starting to see things that I'm sure will become a buzzword if they're not already, but things that have been useful for a long time that are starting to come out of the market, which is much more of an idea of like threat analytics. So let me get away from like an indicator and, and literally codify the adversary's tradecraft into an analytic, um, not data science type analytics, but let me just say, anytime I see a VPN into an HMI that drops a new file and RDPs or RDAs out the session and then comes back in, that that's a SCADA hijack analytic 
Well, now I can share all the technical indicators all I want, no matter how sensitive they are, knowing that people are going to leak them out. But an adversary would have to change their entire approach to that scenario, not just their indicators. So I think that's where we can move defense in a pretty scalable and transposable way um, in the right direction. And kind of pivoting on that a little bit and going back to some of our earlier discussions, so we kind of talk about industrial control systems, SCADA, and everything that's, you know, when we talk about a lot of these embedded devices that are controlling everything from power plants to crop dusters or whatever it is, um, you know, I guess what are some of the challenges that they have compared to traditional infrastructure devices, but what are some of the commonalities that people can kind of get their minds wrapped around them so they're not just so incredibly foreign? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's like these phase of people that come into ICS, and it's a good thing, and it's fun to watch. Um, but phase of like education, where the first first time people look at control systems are like, well, I don't, I don't know what that is, but that's interesting. And they sort of like wisen up. They go, Holy crap, these things are everywhere, uh, you know. And then and then they look at them and like, Oh, well, they're all legacy and serial communications and rugged. And then they, you know, sort of get educated on the top and go, Oh my gosh, you mean SCADA runs on Windows? <laughs> and then it's like, well, this is this isn't anything different. And then they sort of the higher end, they come back and go, okay, hold on. It doesn't matter about technology. It doesn't matter about protocols. It matters that the mission is different. And I think that's that's kind of where I would start the discussion for everybody is, yeah, there's legacy communications and there's weird protocols and the ways that you dissect out those protocols and what they mean compared to normal, you know, normal IT protocols is different. Um, and sure, a lot of the boxes that we have are ruggedized and, and, and weird looking. But even if we had all the same technology, even as the same protocols and same, you know, window systems, uh, I still don't think it would matter. You'd still have to treat them differently because it's it's less about the technology and much more about the mission focus of this equipment. Um, when you screw up in an IT environment, it sucks and people could lose their job. But when you screw up in an ICS, like it's it's no joke. People could lose their lives. And it's definitely not common because we have a wonderful industry dedicated towards safety and resilience, um, but it, it's a reality. And so, uh, I mean, I think this is, even goes back to the idea of like an IT slash OT combined SOCs, OT being operation technology, um, sort of the, the window systems, if you will, of a um, ICS environment. And, and when we look at this, it, it again, it always comes down to mission focus. Okay, we have to actually break these out. We can't really do a combined. We want people to talk together. We want people to interact with each other. That's great. But the way we are going to do an investigation, the purpose of that investigation, um, the way we're going to respond and why we'd respond, and the skill sets going into it, all of that's going to be different off of the mission of that equipment. A pulp and paper mill is going to be different than an oil refinery, going to be different than an electric transmission substation. Um, and these these are important differences. And this is also one reason I'll push back when I hear people combine everything in the IoT category. It's because, you know, industrial control systems have been around a long time, right? I mean, I think depending on who you ask, they'll give you some case about like water clocks in Egypt. But industrial control systems have equally been around for a long time. The modern industrial control system predates the internet, predates networking, predates IoT. And so to then take something that already exists and bundle it up into some other category is not going to work in the community anyways, because most people will just push back on it with good reason. Um, but but the IoT classification is a reference to the technology. Like these are things that are connected now on the network. But the industrial control system is a classification on what it does. So it's a difference between categorizing things by what it is versus what it does. So to me, there's IoT, then IT, then ICS, then IIoT. Um, and, and, and it's kind of interesting to see these worlds collide. Um, and it's, it'll be even more interesting as the market develops because I'm sure we'll have um, various solutions predicting that they can, you know, one ring to rule them all. Yeah, but it's funny because it, it sounds like to me it's, it's not dissimilar to how we would classify a lot of other typical IT assets and the mission with them within inside the organization. You know, I'm not going to, if I run vulnerability scans and I find criticals on a segmented fax machine, I'm not going to go nuts and say, oh my God, you know, we need to do everything we can to, to patch that versus an exchange server that might have some medium or low vulnerabilities, but has more of a critical operations to the organization. So it sounds it's still kind of aligning where you have to kind of, you know, what, <laughs> what squeaky wheels get the oil essentially. Yeah, no, I mean, that's fair. And I think, you know, Dale Peterson was the one that I think that first said it, where he said that high value IT is very similar to ICS. 
Um, and, and, and that's always useful. I think, um, every time I look, I don't want to come off as cynical about anything. I, I'm extremely optimistic. I think our community is amazing. And if there's any community to do defense, by the way, and just like quote unquote, win, if that's a thing, it'll be ICS, like our community is awesome. Um, but, uh, I, I think that, you know, it's always interesting when I see somebody come in and try to give stereotypes and they'll be like, well, and, that, and tell me that you haven't heard this one before. Well, uh, in IT, they care about confidentiality, integrity, availability. But in ICS, it's upside down. It's availability, then integrity, then confidentiality. Like, that's so stupid. <laughs> like, it's 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 just a way to, like, try to position that you know more about something in a field. It's so, so ridiculous. Um, tell me that the nuclear operator doesn't care about the integrity of the commands getting sent to the reactor. Or tell me that the Amazon EC2 CIO doesn't care about the availability of the cloud. Like, it, it's just there's mission-driven focuses of technology in IT and OT and that people have to appreciate and understand. But but the ways we're going to approach those are absolutely going to be different. And there is no simple truism of like, well, you can't vulnerability scan a control system. Well, there's some that you can. Um, you probably shouldn't, but there's some that you can. And and it just goes back and forth, and it's just kind of funny to watch. And what I would largely say to everybody is the big difference is the mission focus. Yes, it requires a different focus. No, you should not just extend antivirus and like a Q-Radar sim into an ICS and think you're doing okay um, because our threats are different, our focuses are different, and the way that we're going to approach those challenges are different. But yes, it's still doable, and a lot of the skills you have from IT security can absolutely translate into ICS skills with the, with the right level of training and, and sort of exercising. And, and with that, certainly, you know, it's a perfect segue, Robert, to the fact that you did start a SANS course on ICS uh, defense and response. So kind of what what was the impetus for that? Why, why even start a course? How did that even come about? And, and what does that course look like? Yeah, absolutely. So the course came about because I was, so I was, uh, as I mentioned, I led that mission at the, the NSA for basically identifying and hunting and kind of responding to these industrial threats. And what I found is I had to build a lot of that myself. Like my, there was no training course for me. You know, I, there was like INL courses and stuff and I didn't get access to that. And I was stationed overseas and there was no like NSA lab for me to go play in control systems. So a lot of what I ended up doing is like buying stuff off eBay and networking it together and hacking it and defending it and back and forth. And I just thought, you know, as I bring on people and expand this team, because we went from like three to 30, like there, there's got to be structured training. <clears throat> and, and that's not to say that there wasn't good training about ICS, but the training that was out there about ICS was always around like, here's what a control system is. Here's how you patch it. Here's how you put some structure around it. It was all that architecture and passive defense stuff. I didn't really see an active defense course. You know, how do you actively defend and respond in these cases? Um, so actually, while still at the NSA, I got approval to spend my leave to come out and develop and then um, teach the SANS class. And so I, um, it, Mike Asante and Tim Conway and Justin Cyril and, and the folks over there had just put together the ICS 410 course. And it was doing fairly well, which is like the intro to ICS, which covers that architecture passive defense stuff and in a really nice scalable way. And then, um, so I, I pitched the idea of this other one, this active defense course. And so that's what I ended up making, um, ICS 515, which is active defense and incident response. Um, and so I built out a lab and made the course in my spare time at night and launched it and um, started taking off and, and actually was becoming a pain uh, because I was teaching so often. I never had leave anymore. So I had to like bring up other instructors. And luckily, we had some great folks that came on, like Mark Bristow led up instant response at the ICS cert and some, some great talent come in to teach as well. Um, and it was, it was really fun and still teaches to this day. And I still teach it to this day. So I teach it five times a year and I teach my other class that I wrote, which is the forensics 578 threat intelligence course. I'm at SAN. So I teach those both five times each. And, um, and it's just really, really fun because it's the, the, uh, what I've been able to do since leaving the government and having a better salary is I build a water utility in my house, um, with the help of, uh, Tom and Norman and uh, I mean, it's quite literally, it's a full functioning water utility with pumps and, and uh, pressure sensors and metering and everything else and all the various engineering workstations and HMIs and everything you'd imagine. And then I ran like five different attacks through it. And so now I just throw like this combined like scenario to my students over the course of five days. I'm like, you know, good luck. You know, I, I train and walk them through it at the same time, but it is fun to watch them deal with all these things. And, and it's about as real world as you can get. So it's, uh, it's pretty fun. 
you know, and one of the things I always like to ask, you know, particularly people that speak uh, or teach at Sands, you know, what are what are some of the things that you learn by teaching? Because you know, the the other Rob Lee within Sands, you know, he now has talked about the fact that you know, there's there's almost not a class that goes by that he doesn't say, oh wow, somebody brings up a question to him and he learns something. Are there are there things that you're finding that you're able to pull back into your your kind of uh, educational ecosystem as you teach people? Yeah, I I hate to be cliche. And somewhere in my soul, it bothers me to agree with Rob Lee. No, I'm kidding. He's like my brother. <laughs> but but uh, we're not related at all. But he has been long time like my brother. But um, um, yeah, every class. And so it's I have learned way more from teaching than probably anything else. I mean, I think you learn a lot um, when your first couple of incidents that you work. And you, you learn something new from each one. But to me, if I had to measure what went into my own personal education – um, teaching is probably the most significant portion of it because there's a couple of reasons for that, right? You don't want to be the jerk that stands up there and doesn't know what they're talking about. So you're constantly being made aware of every given subject matter to to be relevant and 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 be able to lead the class discussion. Um, at the same time, you're constantly critiquing your own course. So I I loved my course and back when it was the previous lab scenario, if you will, or it was my home lab, not the water utility. Everybody loved it. One of the higher you know, scoring classes at Sands, people people loved it. I'm like, no, it's not good enough. You know, I feel like I was like, oh, I gotta I gotta do more. I gotta gotta make it better. So I, I'm gonna build a water utility and like going through that process taught me a lot. And so it's just it's uh it's amazing at how much your own I don't know if it's ego or I don't think ego is the right word, but but desire to make the students better. It's like this desire to constantly challenge and push the envelope to make sure that people that leave your class are ready. And so now, especially now we've got the certification. So I've got the GCTI on the Intel class, and I've got the GRID, the Global Response and Industrial Defense on my 515 class. You know, when people wear, you know, what effectively I call my certs, you know, they put it on their profiles. I want to know that that person's really earned the right to do that. And so I'm going to challenge them and teach them everything I can in that course. And I want to make sure that we create these advocates that go out and change the ICS community. And, and I think that's so critical because one of the one of, I think the biggest challenges for the ICS community today is just the pure volume of people that are interested in it versus the people that have expertise. And so I consistently see well-intentioned people go speak at conferences or talk to asset owners about what they should or shouldn't do. And it's like copy and paste IT stuff and it doesn't work. You know, this miseducation piece is huge in ICS right now. And and I, I like knowing that I'm helping facilitate somebody's journey to push back against that miseducation and be somebody who's going to help change an industry that quite literally is the sort of the, the, the modern you know civilization that we live in. Um, so it's, yeah, constantly pushing, constantly learning from it. And it's so exciting to people see people come through that class and graduate and get their shirt and go off and do amazing things. That's awesome. Now, you know, I'm sure people come up to you, you know, that are not in the class, but just in general, I guess, what would be the advice you would give to somebody that says, Hey, you know, I want to get into this, this area of security and it, you know, what, what's the one area you tell them to kind of start focusing on and get, and get their feet under them. Yeah, they should really learn the industrial processes themselves like they should they should learn like how is water done like how is oil made and refined um and so i actually wrote a blog on this a while ago so my blog is uh robertemley.org slash blog and like six posts out or something there's a getting started in ics cybersecurity, and and like a good portion of the beginning is all about here's how electricity is transmission uh, lines and distribution lines here all that's done and just teaching about the world around us i often find that if somebody can sit down in front of an episode of how it's made and smile they're probably going to be good in our industry um so you need to learn and get a, a healthy appreciation of that that physical side of the world that that um, the industrial control systems are responsible for um then as far as the security skill that's the most important you know, I've gone back and forth over this over the years, and people often ask me, like, should they be an engineer that comes over to security or security that goes over to engineering? And and I don't know that it matters, um, but I, I know that you should have the ability to do investigations. 
if you're going to do any sort of security outside of like designing systems and and patching and maintaining them so if we're getting past the passive defense and architecture and moving into that world of active defense the core skill is the ability to do an investigation because in it you know it'd be nice if we knew the full events that went into every incident and it would be nice if we had good takeaways but largely people play whack-a-mole if you're dealing global security for a company there's plenty of cases each day that you just you know the antivirus fired you tried to clean it up and you just went on your day and and, and it was it was blocking and whack-a-mole because you had other things to deal with that's not the case in ics um, you could block something and pose a risk to the industrial control system side of the house, um, not only in the network, but even on the on the uh, system. So say a piece of malware infects a critical process running on the system that related to like the alarm server getting critical updates. Um, that'd be a bad thing. So even if we had 100% true, you know, positive, high confidence rates that, yes, this malware is on this system, we also might find that we don't care. It might be something that's not spreading or doing anything that's risky to the ICS, so we might just wait, we might just clean it up in a maintenance period. So giving control to the control system engineers and plant managers and the folks running that equipment is important, which means that in every single case, if it's something of any importance, we're going to do an investigation. Not, maybe not a full-on incident response. We're going to do an investigation, which to me means the ability to pivot across data sets and correlate disparate data sets together to tell a consistent story and resolve an answer at the end um, that started with some question. And, and to me, that is the core skill of somebody who's going to be a very effective ICS person. That's how it's not dissimilar to a lot of other areas of security. It's just that critical thinking and kind of, you know, I always say to people, you know, it's it's not about the technology. It's about how you can approach the problem. And so getting people to, to think like that and not get too myopic on, oh, I just, I just need to know the ins and outs, which is great, but it's it's more about process and approach. Absolutely. Now, you know, in one of the things I kind of want to end with is, you know, certainly it's to go with the doomsday scenario. The one thing, one thing that we hear all the time is, oh, my God, the Chinese, the Russians, somebody's going to take out the power grids, water supplies. You know, it's just we're going to go. We're, you know, one step away from some um, some walking dead scenario where, where everything just collapses and society falls apart due to some ICS attack. How real is that? And, and really, you know, what's the what would be the motivation for somebody to do that? I saw a speech by um, by Space Rogue when he was talking about you know cyber squirrels and the idea that look there, there's a point where you know maybe these these nation states don't want to take out our our systems because they will then turn the lights off on some of the attacks they might be using on other areas. So I guess where's where's the real fear and risk versus uh, you know what's hyperbole at this point? Yeah, so I think. The idea that states don't want to do it is misplaced, <laughs> uh, and I think that um, let, me, let me just back up and, and say adversary intent is one of the most difficult intelligence requirements possible um, to understand why an adversary would or wouldn't do anything. I think a lot of people misunderstand their own expertise and say a lot of crap out loud that maybe they shouldn't. And I'm in no way talking like Space Rogue. I actually really like him and think he does a lot of good work. I'm talking in general when when people come out and go, well, China wouldn't do this. Like, really? How long ago were you a Chinese operator with command authority? Oh, you haven't been? Well, shit. Yeah. <laughs> like, not know what you're talking about then. Like, it's it's the level of ridiculousness I hear from people pontificating about what an APT will or won't do is quite funny. Um, the Russians won't do this. Well, which ones are we talking about? We're talking about SVR. We're talking about GRU. We're talking about FSB. Like which, which ones, which teams inside of those or which commander, uh, appropriate across, you know, any given team at any given point in time. Well, what, what happened after the election? Um, how does that change things? I mean, there's just so many things, but so, uh, adversary intent, I'm going to sidestep that because of that, Getting into your question, um, there are some really concerning scenarios. The idea that a phishing email to a power plant should elicit a New York Times headline article about cyber attacks on the power grid, that's ridiculous. And we need to have a much more nuanced discussion on what security means for industrial. And we also need to all be very, very thankful and appreciative of our utilities and our folks that are out there in hurricanes and elsewhere restoring power and having a resilient infrastructure. So I've always made that message, but where it gets abused, and I've even sort of had to add this asterisk 
to my own notes because people quote, misquote me, is that just because I think the power grid is resilient does not mean I think your cookie factory is. You know, the the complexity of the power grid, which is really multiple grids, is pretty high. The complexity of your one gas turbine facility that's connected to the power grid may not be so high. Um, the manufacturing plant down the street may not have such a high complexity. So as the complexity of the scenario we're discussing increases, so too must the um, effort by the adversary to make a, an attack increase, um, let alone to make it scalable. And so I'm very concerned with scenarios that we're already seeing, 2015, lights out in Ukraine, uh, 2016, again, uh, 2017, uh, Trisis, uh, compromised a petrochemical facility, and by all intents and purposes, it looks like it was there for the purpose of um, specifically killing humans. But at the same time, even you know, my firm has been involved in all these different um, ones, and and even with what I came out and said about Trisis, I said, look, we should be pissed off. Like this was the first piece of malware ever designed to specifically kill people. Um, it could have taken down a portion of the plant, and you're in that portion of the plant. To my understanding of it, you would have had anywhere from a dozen to two dozen casualties. That's serious. And and when you're measuring cyber attacks and and body counts, we have a problem. Um, but then I then I even see and I go to like LinkedIn. I see like different national security fellows and stuff being like, yeah, Rob said that um, an entire petrochemical facility was going to be blown up by an adversary. I'm like, whoa, that's not what I said. And so it's just, it, it's always one extreme or the other. And I just do not understand what's difficult about living in the middle. And, and, I, and I don't want to come off as salty, but it's, it's, it's really become frustrating where, no, we're not all going to die because of a phishing email. But yes, there are assholes out there that want to take down civilian infrastructure. And living in the middle um, should give us both discomfort and comfort. Comfort in the fact that we can do this. Defense is doable. We can absolutely maintain the resiliency of our infrastructure, not just through resiliency, but the ability to detect and respond more effectively and efficiently than the adversaries. Um, but that also does mean that we need to take it seriously because there are some significant risks that are posed out there, and we need to find the threats and keep them out of our infrastructure. So I, it's a it's a delicate balancing act. I, I think I, I um, the more I speak publicly and the more I get quoted, the more I realize that it's incredibly balanced, uh, incredibly sort of thin line that gets people spun up in one way or the other. Um, and the idea that you know squirrels are—I think this is going back to your original question—that I can kind of end it out. But um, the idea that squirrels are a big threat—you know—I I always used. I've even written comics on it with the Little Bobby comic and made fun of and be like, "Oh yeah, it's a squirrel attack." Um, but then, and I don't think this is Space Rogue's intention either. But I've literally seen pundits and political pundits talk about the threat of squirrels and how it's it cyber is not as bad of a risk, and that's not the point. <laughs> a well-funded adversary. Focusing on a high confidence event can design a far more destructive scenario than a squirrel and a distribution line. But the point of talking about the squirrels was to always say, like, hey, you freak out about cyber attacks, but there are more squirrel attacks than there are cyber attacks. Um, and it also goes to the point that your plant managers and your utilities, they're not going to instantly prioritize cyber above everything else. They've got some you know, gas pipeline that needs maintenance or um, a turbine that's past its life cycle and it really needs replaced, you know, deciding to spend money on security or that equipment, it should be a pretty easy decision and go after the equipment. Um, but we can't come in as security people thinking that we're the mission. The mission is whatever that plant's producing or doing, not security. Security's just got to be there to complement it. But anyways, long story short, uh, fear less, do more. <laughs> Yeah, got to reduce some of the FUD every now and then. Um, so, you know, w one of the things that we got connected to, too, I guess it's a weird way of saying that, but as well is, you know, it's through the uh, Hack NYC um, conference that's coming up in New York in a couple weeks. Um, I guess, you know, that that has a particular focus on industrial controls and, and SCADA and everything else. What do you hope that people can walk away from that particular conference with and say, oh, wow, you know, I there's something I didn't know about or something I can learn or, or, or actionable you know, information they can improve something in that, that arena. Yeah, I would, I would set, set, re, uh, set realistic expectations of both your speakers and of yourselves. Um, so I 
it was kind enough of, of Tom to invite me to be on the advisory board of that conference. I won't be able to attend this year, unfortunately, just had a, a newborn. Um, but uh, I, I went through the CFP and tried to be useful on the discussions of like ICS. And the whole conference is critical infrastructure focused, whether it's from financial and healthcare to transportation to ICS. And it, it's really cool. And I'm super excited for the conference. I think it's going to be a really, really good event. And it's well needed in New York as well, because we usually see these epicenters of like San Francisco and maybe even Houston of rolling gas. But, you know, it's, it's about time we had like a really serious one on the, the northeast um, region. And I'm looking forward to hack NC being uh, NYC being that. Um, what I would say in terms of the set realistic expectations, though, is this is the first year. It's a focus on critical infrastructure. I hope that the speakers don't try to be the expert. And I hope the audience member don't expect them to be on topics that we're all just kind of learning and figuring out together. Let's let's set a realistic expectation of learning one thing from any given talk. And I think you're going to have an extremely good time um, doing that. Um, it goes back to that miseducation piece. I don't want somebody to give a talk. And I actually, on the CFP, denied a couple talks that were exactly faced this way of like, I have the answer for ICS security. Like, no, you don't, dude. Like, I read through your submission. Please stop. Um, but hey, I did. I went out and I learned something, and I want to share it with the community. And here's something that I think we can move the community a little bit forward. Or here's something that we've been doing together, and I think that we have there's a better way to approach it. Like those type of talks are amazing, and I and I think that there's going to be a lot of those at this conference. That's awesome. What well, and sorry you can't attend. I, I'm still uh, on the fence myself. I feel bad. I would, I, I guarantee Tom I would be there, but now it's it's looking like I'm I'm fifty fifty uh, because there's some things actually in Denver I have to attend. There's another set of conferences out here, so it seems to be a busy season. Uh, but yeah. Congr- yeah. Congratulations on the newborn. Uh, Thanks. Yeah. Where where else can people find you and, and look you up on the interwebs? Yeah. So uh, Robert M Lee on Twitter. RobertMLee.org for a website, and then my firm is Dragos. And basically, if anybody needs help on uh, ICS security, we're I, I usually don't pitch my company, so people never really know what we do unless you're in the community. Yeah. Actually, everyone's like, "Oh yeah, they're consultants." No, we're we're actually a technology company. We, we, we have a product. <laughs> I uh, I just don't like vendor pitches. Um, but if you if you're in the area of instant response intel, sort of threat monitoring, you know, look us up, uh, and and uh, yeah, you'll usually see a lot of the Dragos folks out at conferences. Anyways, we're uh, we, we try to be good, good community folks and and uh, drink the medicine we sort of put out there. Nice. Well, I'll be sure to put all that stuff in the show notes, and I greatly appreciate you taking the time today to speak with me. Yeah, likewise. Thank you. All right, Robert. Thanks so much. We'll see you soon. Take care. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.